Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Glad to have you with us there online, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, any of those social media platforms there. Be sure to heart to like, to share, uh, follow us, uh, subscribe there. Be sure to do all of that. Uh, as well as uh, welcome to those who are on our phone live streaming. want to welcome you. If you need that number, uh, please let me know. We'll be glad to get that to you so that you can uh, be able to listen there on the phone system. Uh, also want to encourage you, if you have access to it, to go to the church website, highlandbaptistchurch.com. Uh, it's under the info tab that you can download the worship bulletin for this week. You can download the children's worship bulletins, uh, but especially as pertains to tonight, you can download the prayer list. So I want to encourage you to take the time to get that downloaded as we go through our prayer list tonight and pray for those individuals on that list. We want to get updates from you, so be sure to give us any updates or any new requests on Facebook. Uh, that's where we'll see that on the live, so be sure to share that with us. Uh, and then if you're here in person and need those, they're at the end of the pews. If anybody comes in late, uh, please uh, make sure they get one. And then let me just encourage you to also continue praying uh, about our Lottie Moon Christmas offering and giving uh, towards that special offering. If you're there on our website at HighlandBaptistChurch.com, you can go to the far right-hand side, click the Give Online tab there. Uh, you can do your regular online giving. You can do your Lottie Moon Christmas offering giving there. Uh, encourage you to uh, give there so that we can reach our goal of 8,000. This is all going to support those missionaries. Uh, and, you know, uh, God has given us so much uh, with uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we ought to be giving back to him also. And this is one of the ways that we can, uh, supporting those missionaries as they share the gospel. So let me encourage you to do that and also encourage you to be praying for those missionaries. We've got one more story we're going to share with you this coming Sunday, and I want to encourage you to be here uh, to hear that uh, story. Uh, let me just say also tonight... Uh, we will not have choir practice for those who may be at home watching or thinking you're going to come for choir practice. No choir practice tonight, no choir practice next week, no choir practice the week after that. So three weeks or three Wednesdays here, including tonight, no choir practice. So just wanted to let you know that. Our kids are here with Awana. They're having happy birthday Jesus party tonight, but the Awana is off uh, for the next two Wednesday nights. So just want to let you know that. Uh, also as well as I think our youth are also off at least one of those, maybe both of those. Uh, so uh, be reminded of that. This Sunday uh, is going to be our Christmas Eve service, so we'll be having uh, regular services on Sunday morning, uh, but then Sunday evening there'll be no regular services. We'll have a drop-in uh, Lord, uh, Lord's Supper uh, communion. Uh, that'll begin at 5 o'clock uh, to 7 o'clock, so I want to encourage you to, to drop in if you can. Uh, we'll have everything set up here. Our deacons, will, Some of our deacons will be here throughout the evening, throughout those two hours. Uh, there'll be prayer guides over here to my left next to the post uh, for you to pick up, as well as a plate there uh, for your benevolence offering uh, to help with the benevolent needs that we seek to reach out and help people with throughout the year. Uh, so just want to encourage you to be here Sunday night if you can for that. Put that on your calendar to be ready for that. So Brother Mike, you'll come and lead us. You just played the birthday of the king. Did you remember that I turned that in for Sunday morning also? No, but that's just one we're, of my favorites. We're singing it Sunday morning also. Turn, if you will, into your hymnal to hymn 87 and let's sing Joy to the World.
heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and plants, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders and wonders of his love. Thank you, Brother Mike. Thank you, Miss Pat. Hopefully you've had a chance to get your prayer list uh, downloaded there uh, online. If not, be sure to go ahead and get that downloaded. If you're there and want to share any prayer requests with us, no matter which platform you're on there, you can do that. Uh, but for the live, uh, we only do that on Facebook. So I've got Facebook open on my iPad so I can see if you have any prayer requests or any updates of anyone on your prayer request list there. Uh, so if you have that, uh, let me just go down a few that I do know uh, to share with you some uh, how things are going. Uh, Want to encourage you to just continue to remember Rick German uh, in your prayers. He continues to recover from his surgery. From what I understand, he's doing well. Uh, Jack Doubt uh, still uh, is waiting on uh, results from different blood work that he's got and stuff. So keep him in your prayers. Uh, Brian Tate uh, did well. Uh, with his uh, procedure on Monday, so we praise the Lord for that. Tony Rogers is walking without a cane, without a walker, any of that now. Uh, he's still got a ways to go there, not back at 100%, but uh, doing great there. Uh, Jimmy Marlowe is still recovering from surgery, so want to remember him in your prayers. Robert Everett did have his uh, double knee replacement surgery. Uh, I talked to his wife uh, earlier today, and uh, he is um, hopefully gotten moved uh, she told told me that it was hopefully this afternoon they were going to move him to the rehab part of the hospital down at winchester and he will be there for about eight to nine days uh, in the rehab there so keep him in your prayers as he continues they had really running through the mill uh, today but you know that when they do that they want to get you up and moving as quickly as possible so uh, that's kind of been a rough uh, thing for him uh, today so remember robert everett as he continues to recover from his surgery continue to remember miss cindy jordan as she's got some uh, tests and some uh, doctor visits that are upcoming uh, also and then we sent a call out earlier today uh, wade hall uh, is at erlanger he had a, a blood vessel that burst in his eye uh, but they think 
uh, that it, they don't have this confirmed. That's why we didn't put this on the uh, call out. But uh, what Stan told me earlier today is they think he may have had a light stroke. Uh, they said that he probably won't get, regain the sight that he's lost in that eye. But uh, Suzanne said that it's his bad eye anyway, so it was not his good eye. Uh, so that was some good part there with that. But keep him in your prayers. He's probably going to come home tomorrow. Uh, but keep him in your prayers as he uh, goes through uh, all of that. Uh, then, are, are there any others on the Highland Baptist Church family side there that you may have? Or any updates of any that you know there? All right, moving over to the friends and family side. Uh, let me just start down with uh, Laura Hendricks. Uh, she is uh, in the middle of her cancer treatments, so we want to remember her uh, in your prayers as she continues uh, to go through uh, those treatments. I remember Sandy McKinney, uh, who has some medical issues. That's a request from Judy Stockdale. Doug Ray, who's still recovering from surgery. Uh, Andy Taylor, who is Nancy Ritchie's brother. He has cancer, uh, and so keep him in your prayers as well as them. Uh, from what I understand, they're going to be moving soon uh, in the next couple of months here, so keep them in your prayers as they go through all of that, and then also remember uh, Ricky Herford, is that how I say it? Okay, uh, who's uh, gonna be beginning radiation treatments after the first of the year. Uh, this is a friend of Jimmy Gaddis's, uh, who he asked us to put on the prayer list, so keep him uh, in your prayers. Uh, we also, I think that's all that I had on that side. Is there any other updates or any ones you wanna add to that side? Yeah, and that's what we said on Laura. She's in the middle of those treatments, and um, hopefully these next ones won't be as hard on her. Okay, also, if you'll look on your nursing home list, there's been some moving around uh, there of some individuals. We mentioned some of these on Sunday, uh, but we have Mary Campbell, who's at NHC, Peggy Eggleston at Life Care. Susie Barton is now at NHC Tullahoma uh, in the rehab there. Uh, keep her in your prayers. She has kind of gotten settled. I talked to Eddie the other day. Uh, she has good days and bad days, but uh, she was settled when I talked to him on, on Sunday evening. Uh, Miss Birdie Davis is at Brookdale still, Miss Janet Carter at MacArthur Manor, uh, and then Floyd and Sue Prince have been at Morning Point, but they've also had some issues uh, recently, so keep them in your prayers, uh, as well as Miss um, Beverly Daniels. She has moved now to the Manchester Rehab. Don't know how much longer she'll be there before she comes uh, back home or back over here to Tullahoma. Any other updates on any of those? Any other requests that you may have? Okay, I don't see any in here and I don't see any online on Facebook. So uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Do you just remember uh, all of those who are um, struggling through times at the holidays? It's difficult for some people uh, who have lost loved ones and and it's a difficult time going through the holidays without those loved ones. So just remember those individuals in your prayer, uh, especially as we're uh, just continuing to, to focus on, uh, on the Lord. I did just, re just get an update here. So let me just share it uh, from Ella Thames uh, and her mom who are watching. Uh, Miss Pugh, who she's been asked for prayer for 
for us for before uh, had another scan is still cancer free uh, she's going to return to work in January. Uh, Ella has also asked us in the choir to be praying for uh, a couple with their infertility issues. They're still having good results on their tests. So continue to remember uh, that, that couple in your prayers with their infertility issues. Uh, continue to pray for Matthew Ratcliffe uh, for his recovery. It's been a year now since his uh, vehicle accident. So he continues to slowly make process. Uh, so continue to pray for him. So thank you, Miss Ella, for sharing that with us. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer then. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your grace and your mercy tonight. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that as we're going through this holiday time, we're uh, reminded of what this season is all about. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know there's a lot of decorations and trees and buying of presents and giving of presents and parties and all kinds of things that are going on, Lord, to celebrate. But Lord, I pray that in all of that, may we not lose sight of what it's all about, that it's about the birth of Jesus Christ who came uh, to be born into that lowly manger, even though he was a king, uh, to be born in that lowly manger, to live a perfect sinless life, uh, to come as a suffering servant and die upon the cross for our sins, to be buried in the tomb and arise on the third day, uh, to ascend to the Father in heaven, to send us the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts and our lives. And so, Father, we just want to thank you for this season. Uh, Father, I pray that we will make uh, the name of Jesus known to the people around us, uh, that we will share the good news of the gospel message with others. Lord, as uh, we've shared with our kids tonight in Awana, uh, as we're opening those presents, uh, may we be reminded of the promise that you made to us to send us a Savior uh, who would save us from our sins. And so, Father, I pray that that would be the greatest gift that we would give to you uh, during this Christmas season, if we have not already, is to give our heart, to give our life to Jesus Christ. And if we have done that, then, Lord, I pray that we would give our all to you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts to show us any sin that is in our lives. We know, Lord, that you are a righteous and a holy God, and we come before you, Lord, as, as just humble servants. Lord, knowing we're not perfect, we have sinned, we have thought things we shouldn't have, we have maybe said things we shouldn't have. Maybe we've done things or went places we shouldn't have. Uh, Father, maybe there's things that we should have did that we didn't do. And so, Father, I pray that you would forgive us of all of those sins, whether they're sins of commission or sins of omission. And Father, I pray that you will just stir our hearts to a heart of repentance. Father, I pray for those uh, who are going through difficulties, especially here at the holidays. Some, Lord, are going through financial difficulties, others through family difficulties. Others, Lord, their hearts are just sorrowful. It's, a, it's probably, Lord, one of the, the largest times that we see people committing suicides. And so, Father, I pray that as many people may be around us who are celebrating, let us also remember those, Lord, who may be going through depression, uh, those who are discouraged, uh, those who are downtrodden in their heart. Father, I pray that you would help us to come alongside them and to love upon them and to encourage them to maybe write a card to them or to call them or to stop by and talk to them. Maybe it's our neighbor. Uh, maybe it's a family member. Father, I just pray that you would use us in whatever way that you can and will uh, to be a, a source of light into their hearts, into their lives, a source of hope, uh, to show them that there is hope in Jesus Christ, that no matter what we're 
are going through, you are with us, you're in the valleys with us, and you're on the mountaintops with us. And so, Father, I pray that you will walk with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, I pray tonight as we come before you also, we want to uplift all of these that are on our prayer list and those that we've mentioned tonight. Lord, we just ask for your healing touch to be upon each one. We pray, God, that you will uh, just lead and guide those who are nurses and doctors and caregivers that are taking care of these individuals. Give them wisdom, give them discernment for the proper care and the treatments that are needed. But Lord, we know ultimately you are the great physician. So we take all of these names representing all of these people, all of their needs, including those needs that may be there through their family members, whether it's financial needs or, or other needs, maybe marital needs or whatever may be going on, Lord, I pray that, Lord, they will turn to you in their greatest hour of need. Father, I pray that you will touch their hearts and just let them sense your presence. May you give them an overwhelming peace and, 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 and in their hearts and in their lives and shower them, Lord, with your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness to provide for their every need. Father, you've told us your grace is sufficient for all of our needs, so we ask for you to pour out your grace upon them. Lord, we just pray, God, that you will do a wonderful miracle-working work in each one of these individuals' lives. Lord, that we might testify and give testimony to the things that you've done in their lives, that they might do the same, even to those uh, who may be family members who don't know Christ, maybe uh, doctors or nurses who don't know Christ, use their witness uh, to speak to those people around them of your saving grace and your mercy. And Father, we just pray that you will help each one of these individuals that we're uplifting them in prayer with, that even if some of them are in the hospitals or even in the nursing homes, Lord, that you would help them to have the best Christmas they can in those situations. Father, I pray that you would be with our kids tonight as they're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that the things they're learning, even in the games they're playing and the fun they're having tonight, uh, would stick into their hearts, uh, that they would know that Jesus loves them. And Father, I pray that they have heard all this year so far about the message of the gospel, Lord, that those seeds planted in their hearts uh, will one day soon come uh, to fruition of them coming to faith in Christ. Lord, we pray for our youth uh, who are also meeting with them tonight. We pray, God, that you will uh, just stir in their hearts, Lord, to give them a hunger and a thirst for you, uh, to be examples of Jesus Christ to a younger generation as we should be also. And Father, I pray that you would burden our hearts for the next generation. Lord, bless us tonight as we come back to the book of Zechariah. Father, I pray that it'll again be powerful. It will be alive. It will be sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will just speak in a powerful way through your word tonight. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen. Take your Bibles, if you will. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9, chapter 9, verses 1 down through verse 7. Before I get into the passage there, I read this story the other day and I thought it was very pertinent to this passage. Years ago, there was a Cheyenne hunter who found an eagle egg. He was interested to see if the egg would hatch because it was all by itself. And so he placed the egg in the nest of a prairie chicken and waited. The eagle egg did indeed hatch. And the story goes on to say that the mother prairie chicken uh, noticed that this young bird in her nest looked different from all the other birds. He acted different. He sounded different. But as far as she knew, the chick that hatched from this egg was hers. And so consequently, she raised it as a prairie chicken. 
Well, the eagle learned to act like a prairie chicken. Like all of his adopted brothers and sisters, the eagle pecked around on the ground for his food. He thought prairie chicken thoughts. He did prairie chicken things. He told his mother, he, 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 his mother told him, you're a prairie chicken. Uh, so did his father. Everything about his environment uh, validated his identity as a prairie chicken. Then one day this eagle who thought he was a prairie chicken heard the call of a mighty eagle uh, flying overhead. He looked up and he was mesmerized as he watched this bird flying higher and higher until it finally disappeared above the clouds. He cried out, what was that? One day his adopted, one of his adopted brothers said, oh, that's an eagle. The prairie chicken, who really was an eagle, then said to himself, man, I wish I could fly like that. And then with a sigh, he shook his head, went back to pecking the ground and scratching for his food. He was an eagle. He could have flown just like that eagle was flying and soaring up in the air. But just like that eagle in that story, too many people mistakenly believe that they're really something significantly less than what they really are. So often so many people sell themselves short and fail to soar the way God intends for them to soar. For instance, in, in, in a 2006 survey uh, by the Pew Research Center, it asked 18 to 25-year-olds uh, their generation's most important goals in life. I couldn't find another survey where they had done this since then, but it said this, that 81% said that their goal in life was to be rich. 51% aspired to be famous. I know that's probably even more today as many people think they're going to be a, a, an influencer on social media. 30% wanted to help people who need help. 22% wanted to be leaders in their community. And 10% desired to become more spiritual. But understand this. A life of money, a life of fame... Even a life of service or so-called spiritual life is settling for something less than God's best if our lives are not focused on Jesus Christ. You can do all of those things, but if it's not focused on Jesus, it doesn't matter. Zechariah chapter 9 begins a new section for us in the book of Zechariah. When we come to chapter 9 through chapter 14, it differs from the first eight chapters in that there's no reference that's made to the rebuilding of the temple in these chapters. There's no visions that are given to the prophet like we've seen in chapters 1 through 8. Uh, there's uh, individuals that you remember, Zerubbabel, uh, Joshua that we talked about who were so prominent in the earlier chapters. They aren't mentioned at all in chapters 9 through chapter 14. Instead, this last portion of Zechariah's prophecy focuses on the coming of the Messiah. So Zechariah, through the inspiration of God, is, is focusing them now from having heard these visions, having heard the hope that is coming, that, that things are going to turn from fasting to feasting, as we talked about before. Uh, Zechariah's prophecies are here now focusing them on the future about what's coming now. The Messiah is going to come. And so Zechariah's prophecies about King Jesus and both his first and second comings reveal some wonderful aspects 
text about who Jesus is and what he can accomplish through his people, uh, whether we're young or whether we're old. You know, sometimes we, we, we think that, well, uh, I'm up in age, let the younger generation now uh, step up and do things. And yes, the younger generation should be stepping up to do some things, but that doesn't excuse us as we get older uh, to think that, well, I've reached those years, now I can just sit back and I don't have to do anything else. No, until you draw your last dying breath, you ought to be serving the Lord in some capacity, in some way. Uh, I understand there's limitations on some things we can do that we used to couldn't do, uh, that we used to could do, that we can't do anymore. Uh, but there are things we can still serve the Lord for and with until we draw our last dying breath. So uh, whether you're young or whether you're old, God wants to work in us to reveal himself. And so maybe you've asked the question, what does Jesus want to do through me? Uh, you'll find the answer in our text here in Zechariah chapter 9, which reveals three aspects of the character of Christ. So here's the first thing I want you to get from this passage tonight, is that King Jesus expresses God's righteousness in verse 1 down through verse 8. So let's begin, if you will, with chapter 9, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. So Zechariah chapter 9 verse 1 begins by identifying a forthcoming message and oracle. The Hebrew term uh, there is masa. Uh, it's repeated over in Zechariah chapter 12 uh, and verse 1. It comes from a word that has two meanings. One is to bear, the other is to lift up. Uh, some translations take masa to mean a burden or, or a weighty judgment borne by the prophet. Uh, others use that meaning to, to lift up, using the term oracle to, to indicate a message that was lifted up by the prophet. Uh, it, Zechariah concludes with two oracles. The first we see here is in chapter 9 through chapter 11. The second is going to be in chapter 12 through chapter 14. In the beginning of this first oracle here, Zechariah prophesies against Israel's enemies. So he goes back again now to the enemies of Israel and prophesies against them because they have acted unrighteously in God's sight. They, God used them to bring judgment on his people, but they went farther than what God intended for them to do. And so uh, many who look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 8, uh, look at it as a, as a predictive prophecy of, of Alexander uh, the Great and his conquests in the areas of the north and, and east of Judah. In fact, when you look at prophecy, you'll find many times that there's uh, more than one uh, emphasis to a prophecy. There's an immediate emphasis to what's about to happen in the life of Israel, uh, but it's kind of like looking at mountains, if you will. We've said this before when we studied about prophecy. When you look at a range of mountains, you just see it as one set of mountains, but if you were to look at it from above, you would see that it's a mountain here, a valley there, another mountain, a, a valley, another set of mountains, another valley, another set of mountains. And so it's, there are some succeeding things that are yet to happen. We're going to see that in these prophecies that we're going to see here, that there are some things that are about to happen to, to fulfill partially these prophecies, but there are other things that have not yet been completely fulfilled because we can look back through history and see that has not yet happened. And we'll see those as we come to them. And, and 
so this first part here in verse 1 through verse 8 does have an emphasis towards Alexander the Great and his conquests in the north and east of Judah. After defeating the Persians at the Battle of Issus in 333 B.C., uh, so this, that time, 333 B.C., is between the book of Malachi and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. So if you remember, if you know anything about biblical history there, there's about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament that there's no word from God. In fact, we read about that uh, previously in Zechariah where they had stuffed up their ears and said, we're not going to listen to you, God. And God said, well, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not even going to talk to you. And we talked about that deafening silence. Well, that's what was going on for 400 years. In 330 B.C., uh, here at the, at the, when, uh, after defeating the Persians at the Battle of Issus there, Alexander was used as a tool in God's hands uh, to bring defeat to the enemies of Judah. So he uses Alexander, uh, who is uh, a Greek, uh, to, as the Grecian Empire is beginning to grow and beginning to, to take over. He uses, God uses Alexander to bring defeat to those enemies of Judah that he's talking about here. Even though he does so unintentionally, Alexander is an instrument of God's uh, righteous judgment in preparation for the coming of Zion's messianic king. Just like we saw Babylon was used by God, Syria was used by God, Egypt was used by God to bring judgment on his people. We see that God uses even ungodly nations. That was one of the complaints the people had to God and said, how could that possibly be? They didn't want to listen to the prophets and said, you're telling us a lie because you're telling us God can use ungodly people. God does. He uses them to bring judgment uh, on his people, and that's what had happened. Well, he's still going to use ungodly people like Alexander uh, to bring uh, judgment on uh, the enemies of Israel. First, Zechariah's oracle addresses the land of Hadrach, a land that's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. Where is Hadrach? Well, the location of Hadrach, which is only uh, by its mention in an Assyrian text outside the Bible, appears to have been situated to the north of all the other places that Zechariah names. So this would be uh, in the far northern reaches here. In the rest of the verse, in verse 1, Zechariah explains why the word of the Lord is against Hadrach, along with Damascus, the capital city of Syria. Why? Because the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. And so... By judging these places, God is going to show his glory. He's going to show his righteousness to his people. He also mentions Hamath, uh, bordering Syria in the northern part of the promised land, along with a place called Tyre. So look at verse 2. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of, of the streets. But behold, verse 4, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Look at verse 5. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, ooh, there's modern day, isn't it? Gaza shout too, uh, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. 
I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. And so back there in verse 3 and verse 4, he had meant, in verse 2, he had mentioned those other places, Hamath. He mentioned Tyre, Sidon. Uh, those are on the Phoenician coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, they're also going to be recipients of God's judgment. In verse 3 to verse 4, he turns his attention to Tyre specifically. Uh, he personifies that city uh, as a woman. Uh, he speaks of her military defenses. Now, if you look back in historical documents and things, you'll see that, and even the text even refers to it here, that Tyre's defenses included a breakwater uh, that was 2,460 feet long, 27 feet thick. Uh, it had elaborate defenses, this city did. Uh, it, it seemed uh, impenetrable. It, it seemed indomitable. Uh, he also uses some similes to describe Tyre's wealth. So from a human point, standpoint, uh, Tyre had good reason to boast about uh, her invulnerability. I mean, we've got everything. We're, we're a rich city. We've got it all. Uh, we've got protection. We've got elaborate defenses here to protect us. Uh, failed attacks from Tyre's enemies in the past had proven the city's strength. And so they began to get overconfident in their own selves. And, and so Tyre had even withstood a five-year siege by the Assyrians who had come and, and come against Israel. So they had withstood five years from the Assyrians under Shalmaneser V in 722 B.C. Uh, and also a 13-year siege by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 527 B.C. Uh, so in spite, though, of their strength and in spite of their prosperity, God promises, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be impoverished. I'm going to cast your wealth into the sea. Moreover, he says, the city itself is going to be burned. In fact, history shows that Alexander captured the city of Tyre that had not been captured for hundreds of years before. That's a warning for us to pay particular attention to in the U.S. Because we think we're, we're impenetrable. No, nobody's ever going to do anything to the United States. But we're not immune. It could happen just as easily to us. Our nation is a young nation in comparison to, to others. And just like Tyre here, who, who had for hundreds of years been able to withstand any enemies that were coming against them, uh, who had all this wealth that, that they were trusting in, rather than trusting in God, God says, all that's going to be gone. I'm going to burn the city. And Alexander does exactly that in 332 B.C. He won his victory by taking the ruins from the old city on the mainland, piling them up in the Mediterranean to build a causeway to an, out to the island city. Alexander, he then blockaded the city of Tyre for seven months until he was finally victorious. Dodorus Siculus, uh, in his records, uh, said that uh, Alexander massacred between 6,000 and 8,000 of Tyre's men, as well as crucifying 2,000 and selling between 13,000 and 30,000 people into slavery. 
The city's weapons were thrown into the sea, and the remainder of the city was set on fire, just like the Word of God prophesied would happen a few years later. Verses 5 through verse 8 that we read a moment ago, talking about Ashkelon and, and some of those cities, is describing the repercussions that the fall of Tyre brings to all of those neighboring Philistine cities. That's who those cities are, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, uh, all of those cities, Ashdod, Philistia. Those are the Philistine uh, cities. Uh, and so uh, four of those five major cities are mentioned here. Only Gath is, Gath is the only one uh, that's not mentioned here, presumably because that city had already deteriorated by this time. So as they're attacked, as these Philistine cities are attacked and conquered, God promised that the Philistine cities, they're going to lose hope. They're going to become uninhabited. And in the end, the Lord is going to destroy the pride uh, of the Philistines as Alexander moves southward. All of this because of what they had done to his people. Even this devastating prophecy of judgment, however, does contain a promise of grace uh, for God's enemies and protection for God's people. Notice there again in verse 7. He said, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. So uh, here we see the blood in verse 7 is a reference to the Philistine practice of, of eating meat that had not been drained of its blood. Uh, now, the detestable things uh, suggest not only polluted and ceremonially unclean foods that they would have eaten, uh, but also idolatrous practices is what he's talking about here. And so the Lord had prohibited uh, drinking blood and eating unclean uh, animals. And with this promise then, God was graciously pleased to change the lifestyles of these pagan people to reflect his righteousness. Even more astonishing, though, than changing the lifestyle of the Philistines, the Lord actually promises to transform their identity so that he's going to treat these traditional enemies of God's people in the promised land just like he would Judah and the inhabitants of Ekron like the Jebusites, the original people of Jerusalem itself. That's who the Jebusites are. So he says, I'm going to treat them just like you are. I'm going to treat them just like the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then verse 8 uh, has some good news for Jerusalem that God's going to encamp around his house. Uh, that's a, a use there of, 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 of uh, indicating uh, the words there, indicating not only the temple itself, but that entire region surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, according to the, to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, after Alexander overtakes Gaza, he starts for Jerusalem. And the high priest who was frightened orders the Jews to offer sacrifices to God and ask for deliverance. And that night, God spoke to the high priest in his sleep and told him to decorate the city with wreaths and to have the people of Jerusalem to wear white garments while the priests dressed in their holy robes to welcome Alexander. And when Alexander approached the city, he was so impressed by the sight that he prostrated himself and offered sacrifices to the Lord, sparing the city of Jerusalem. 
And so we see part of the prophecy beginning to be fulfilled there. In addition to protecting Jerusalem, verse 8 goes on to say uh, that with God's promise to guard the city, uh, he, he promises to guard the city completely from attack. So with this verse, the prophet seems to, to take a great leap forward in time because the immediate meaning of that verse can be seen as a promise that Judah is not going to be carried away into captivity like they were before. So it's a promise to them they would be worried about that. Remember, that's what had happened before. They had turned their backs on God. God had sent the Assyrians. Then he sent the Babylonians. They had gone into captivity. The Assyrians took the northern kingdom. The Babylonians took the southern kingdom. And they're thinking, oh, this is all happening all over again. But he says, no, it's not going to happen like that uh, again. Uh, it's a promise that they're not going to be carried away into captivity like before. Because this prophecy ultimately finds its fulfillment in the future when during the millennial reign of Christ, by his own presence in the city, he is going to safeguard Jerusalem from any kind of threat. So there's a future prophecy uh, to this, not only of Jesus when he comes the first time, but ultimately when Jesus comes the second time. And so while the return of Christ is going to bring about God's perfect righteousness on this earth, right now we live in an unrighteous world. We live in an unjust world. And so as we get closer to the time that Jesus Christ is going to return again, understand this, the world is not going to become better and better and better. Instead, our world is going to become increasingly more sinful. And what has God called us to do in the, in the sight of all that? He's called his people to stand for his righteousness. Romans 12 verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so as believers, we are to be expressing God's righteousness. And that requires us looking at ourselves and asking ourselves, Am I right with God? Am I who he has called me to be? What can I do where I, am, where I am at to work for his justice and righteousness? So expressing God's righteousness is what we're to be doing, and that requires a deep commitment to see God's justice is done. So it means be willing to be transformed like we talked about in the previous chapters in chapter 8 uh, and chapter 7. It means being willing to risk and to work in order to make things right. We all know that there are big world-scale problems when it comes to righteousness and justice. You know, we could list things like world hunger. We could list things like the mistreatment of the poor, uh, worldwide human trafficking. But understand this, God is calling out a generation of people in Jesus' name to say, we will stand for righteousness and justice worldwide, but even on smaller scale opportunities to stand for righteousness in areas that are no less significant, whether that involves ministering God's grace to, to friends who may be in addiction, uh, praying faithfully for maybe a marriage that's, that, that's going through crisis or, or sharing the gospel with somebody who needs Jesus Christ. All of those are, are ways that we can stand in righteousness uh, that are no less significant than the world problems that we see. And so Jesus calls us to step into those situations and express his justice and righteousness by sharing the gospel with them, to be a, a picture and an image of Jesus himself. Then we see in verse 9 down through verse 13, 
King Jesus extends God's deliverance. So verse 1 through verse 8 of this chapter prepares for the arrival of Israel's coming king. In verse 9 through verse 13, the king enters the city of Jerusalem and delivers his people. So here's, an, here's a prophecy uh, that you can actually see uh, being fulfilled in the New Testament uh, in verse 9 through verse 13. So let's read those verses, if you will. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold of prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So in these verses here, verse 9 especially begins with God addressing the people of the city. He talks about them as daughter uh, Zion, daughter Jerusalem. Uh, he's giving the people of Jerusalem three commands. He says, rejoice greatly. He says, shout in triumph. And he says, look. So at the coming of, of King Jesus, God is telling the people, I want you to rejoice. I want you to shout out loud. I want you to pay careful attention to the one who is coming. So the first thing God calls our attention to about Jesus is his righteousness. Uh, the Hebrew word sadiq uh, there speaks to the Lord's personal righteousness. It's talking about uh, that, that he, him, he holds within himself moral uprightness, uh, spiritual perfection, legal righteousness. In other words, he is, he is perfection. Uh, he alone fulfills the righteous standard of God's law. Nobody else ever has, something nobody else on earth ever will do. Uh, the word righteous there also refers to the justice of Christ. He upholds what is right. And then next he calls attention to the Messiah's deliverance. Notice in verse 9 he continues by saying, King Jesus is victorious. Now Walter Kaiser in his commentary says that the word here is the Hebrew term for to save in a passive form. Literally meaning that the Messiah is endowed or, get, or has with him salvation. And so by saying that the Messiah is entrusted with salvation, the meaning is that the Messiah has experienced victory and that he brings deliverance to others. That's what Jesus does on the cross. That's what he does through the resurrection. He's able to give us, because he won the victory over death, hell, and the grave, he's able to give us uh, deliverance uh, through his precious blood. And so the Messiah is further described as being humble. Now think about that for just a moment. Think about those priests and, and the Levites and the Pharisees in Jesus' day who missed the boat. They all missed it because even the disciples, because they thought the Messiah was coming to be a conquering king, to deliver them. But yet this verse talks about the Messiah coming humbly because the emphasis here is upon his entrance 
into the city. How is he riding into this city? He's riding on a donkey. He's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the ancient Near East, a king coming in peace would ride a donkey rather than a war horse. Now think about that in contrast to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is going to come riding on a horse, not on a donkey. He's not going to humble himself. But here, Alexander, here, the Israel's king, the Messiah, is coming in all humility, in all gentleness, bringing salvation and peace. And Zechariah 9, verse 9, is one of the most significant messianic passages in Scripture. The gospel writers quote this verse, applying it to Jesus when he has that triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the Sunday before his crucifixion and his resurrection. Matthew 21, verse 5, John 12, verse 15. And so you see, if you read those verses, you'll see that. And, and what did he say that you're to do when you see the Messiah? You're to shout. You're to sing praises. He says you're to rejoice. Uh, you, you, you're, to, you're to shout aloud, uh, behold, your king is coming to you. What did they do when Jesus came into the city? They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were waving those palm branches. They were recognizing him as coming as the Messiah. And so here we see that uh, Jesus Christ, when he comes again, uh, the second time with his second coming, he is going to destroy warfare during his reign on earth, removing the weapons of war. So uh, here's again where you can see that double meaning of the prophecy here. Jesus came riding on the donkey, but we don't see the rest of that being fulfilled yet where he cuts off the chariot of Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow being cut off, and speaking peace to the nations. He does come bringing peace to the nations. Uh, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from, river to the, from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, that's the thing that's yet to come to happen in his second coming. And so Zechariah's Jerusalem and Ephraim, both in verse 10 and verse 13, is indicating a restoration, a reunion of the southern and the northern kingdoms of Israel during the messianic reign of Jesus Christ in that thousand-year reign. No longer are they going to be divided anymore. But even beyond the borders of Israel, Christ is going to proclaim peace to the nations through his work of deliverance. And that's a part of what we're to be doing as believers now, is declaring that message of the gospel, the message of peace to the nations of the world. But even more so will happen in, in those latter days. So in verse 11 through verse 13, God is promising that the Messiah King Jesus is going to save and deliver the people of Jerusalem from those who would harm them. Verse 11 is one of the most powerful uh, word pictures of his deliverance. The blood covenant not only pointed back to the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, both confirmed uh, with sacrifices in Genesis 13, 15 and Exodus chapter 24, but it also points forward to the new covenant that's reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's pointing forward for them in, in Zechariah's day to when the Messiah comes, his blood is going to be shed for the remission of sins because the price paid by his blood. Jesus releases prisoners from the waterless cistern from an empty pit used as a dungeon. 
The other day I heard something called the parable uh, of the pit. The parable talks about a man who suddenly fell into a deep pit. It's too deep for him to jump out of. And the walls of the pit are impossible to climb, so he's stuck there. And the question is, how's he going to get out of the pit? Well, people come, uh, begin to come and pass by. Uh, there was a self-righteous person who comes by. He looks down at the man and he says, only bad people fall into pits. You must be a really bad person to fall into that pit like that. The man's still in the pit. A philosopher passes by and he says, you're not really in that pit. You just think you are. A man's, the man's still in the pit. The politician passes by and he says, I've got a new program I'm pr pr proposing in Congress and it's going to eliminate the pitfalls like yours. But the man's still in the pit. The county inspector passes by and says, do you have a permit for that pit? And the man's still in the pit. The pessimist passes by and says, you're never going to get out of that pit, and it looks like it's going to start raining, and the man's still in the pit. The optimist passes by and says, so you fell in a pit. Make the most out of it. Maybe you could decorate it. And the man's still in the pit. The engineer passes by and says, well, the pit you're in, it's 20 foot deep, it's 15 feet wide, it's 25 feet long. The man's still in the pit. The preacher passes by and says, I want you to notice three things about that pit. It's a deep pit, it's a dark pit, it's a dirty pit. You know, preachers have always got three points to their sermon. But the man's still in the pit. The psychologist passes by and says, well, maybe your mother pushed you into that pit, and how does being in that pit make you feel? And the man's still in the pit. A self-pitying person passes by and says, you think you're in a pit, you ought to see my pit. And the man's still in the pit. But Jesus sees the man in the pit, and he takes him by the hand, and he lifts him out, and he extends God's deliverance. That's the picture of what he's done for us. None of those things will ever get us out of the pit of sin, only Jesus. So when we need rescuing, when we need salvation, when we need deliverance, we look up from the pit of our sin and we wonder, does anybody love me? Does anybody see me? Is anybody strong enough to get me out of here? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ answers every one of those questions with a loud and resounding yes. Jesus loves you. Jesus sees you. Jesus is strong enough. We don't have the ability on our own to rescue ourselves or anybody else from a spiritual pit of sin. But through his blood that was shed on the cross, Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done to lift us out of that pit. Simply sharing the gospel of Jesus with those around us extends that same deliverance to others. But the final thing we see in this message is in verse 14 to 17 that King Jesus exhibits God's glory, shows God's glory. And so this final section here describes the Messiah's triumph on behalf of his people, as well as his shepherdly care for them. So notice verse 14 down through verse 17. So in the prophecy he says, Then, when you see all these other things happen, then... The Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. When else do you hear about the trumpet sounding in the Bible? The Revelation. 
when the trumpet sounds. So this is what he's talking about. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and shall be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. So in these verses here, Zechariah gives us four quick images to describe the glory of God revealed in the Messiah. The first image is that of a thunderstorm in verse 14 to verse 15. The Lord appears above the people, fighting on their behalf from heaven, lightning portraying his arrows. The blasting thunder is his trumpet. He marches in a, in a furious storm to defend Israel. The Hebrew word for defend in verse 15 is related to the word for a shield. He's our shield, he's our buckler, he's our strength. And so as a result of the victory, the Lord is going to win for them. The armies of God's people are going to consume and conquer their enemies and become drunk on their blood, a gruesome image, but one that nonetheless describes graphically uh, total victory for the people of Israel. The second image is that of the flock of sheep in verse 16. God says he's going to save them or deliver them. So that underlying idea there is bringing them to a place of safety, bringing them to the pastures of safety, the, the places that Psalm 23 talks about. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then third, that third image is of a crown in verse 16. The people, he says, are going to be like jewels in, his, in the crown shining on his land. And then the final image is agricultural with the young men nourished by the grain, the young men, women by the new wine. It's a picture of physical health. It's a picture of well-being, of prosperous, uh, the Lord's people uh, pr being prosperous uh, when, when the Messiah uh, comes. In each one of these images... There's an aspect of God's glory that's revealed in the coming Christ, in Jesus Christ. He's glorified in his conquering power, in his care for the flock, in his delight and his treasure he finds in his people, and in the strength and the beauty he gives to those who follow him. So, so to make a difference for Christ, God calls, his, calls us to reflect his glory. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, for you as Christians were bought with a price. So what are you to do? You're to glorify God in your body. Antonio Stradivari, he set up his workshop in a small Italian town in Cremona in the 1600s. Probably heard of the Stradivarius violin. Uh, you know, it's very expensive, very rare instruments. But if you're like me, you don't know why they're so expensive. Why? are they so rare? Here's why. Because during that time that Stradivari began making his violins, the best violins made in the world were made by the Amati family. The Amati violins were made for performances in small places, performances in what were called drawing rooms in the courts. But music was changing at that time. 
Uh, and, and it was moving from the small room to the large concert halls. Uh, the violin had to be loud enough and clear enough to be heard clearly to the back reaches of the room. So Stradivari, he adjusted to those changes, and that's why he became so great. Uh, he, he chose bigger and better pieces of maple. Uh, he experimented with stronger varnishes. He, he arched the belly of the violin differently to give it that distinctive and loud and brilliant sound unlike any before uh, that time. When Stradivari died in 1737, they found a particular violin in his studio. This violin had never been played. And they gave that violin the name, the Messiah. It has an, it, it has an incredible tiger stripe pattern, they say, on its back. It's said to be the perfect violin. In form and finish, everything about it is flawless. It's on display in a museum in Oxford, England, and it's the only instrument in that museum to have its own showcase. But the Messiah violin was never, ever, in nearly 300 years, has it been played. Wait a minute. The perfect violin, never played, is that a perfect violin? Not according to Ivory Gitlas. He plays his Stradivarius every day. So understand this. Your life, your salvation is a gift from the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he wants to take the life that he has given you and not set it up on a shelf to be displayed to the world. He wants to take your life and to play it for his glory. He wants you to say, Lord, I'm not going to put my life on the shelf. I'm not going to hide myself away. I'm not going to put myself in, in any other place but in the middle of whatever you have for me so that you can use me for your glory. That's what God is telling the people of Israel in Zechariah chapter 9, he wants to use them for his glory. And there's coming a day when that's going to come to fruition. That day is now for us as believers. You have the greatest gift there ever was. A baby born in a manger who lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross, and has given you the free gift of salvation if you'll just trust in him. Don't set your life on the shelf. Give your life to the Lord and let your life be used for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you have done. And we come before you tonight, Lord, asking you to use us. Lord, no matter where we are in our stages of life, no matter what age, no matter what economic status we may be, we may think, well, I don't have enough money to make a difference for you. That doesn't matter. Lord, maybe we think I don't have enough talent to be used by you. That doesn't matter. It matters that we give our heart and our life to you and we receive that free gift of salvation and that we give ourselves to you to be played by you, to be used by you for your kingdom work. So here we are tonight, Lord. We give ourselves to you. We ask, Lord, for you to take us. We ask for you to use us in whatever way that you will to bring glory to your name, especially during this season of Christmas. 
Lord, help us not to think of ourselves as less than, but Lord, to think of ourselves as instruments in your hands to be used by you. And may you use us in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining with us tonight. Uh, we wish God's blessings upon you, but we do encourage you to come this Sunday. We will have morning services this coming Sunday. We'll have Sunday school still uh, at 9.15, worship service at 10.30. So come and join us for either one of those. And then don't forget our Lord's Supper drop-in communion uh, between 5 and 7. Bring you, bring your family. If you're just an individual, you can come too. Uh, and we'd be glad to serve you uh, the Lord's Supper here and to have a wonderful time there on Christmas Eve together with your family. So you have a blessed week. We'll see you this coming Sunday. And if we don't see you before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas.